We're uh, continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes, and one of the, the consequences of sin that we are all familiar with is that sin has the power to isolate us. Uh, that, that sin, especially as a result of the feelings of guilt and shame that come with sin, uh, can cause us to withdraw and cause us to pull back from people and, and even attempting foolishly to try to withdraw from God. I don't want you to see me sin, and so I don't you know, try to put that on display. You don't want to be seen sinning. And, and so there's this temptation to sort of isolate ourselves. If you believe in God, you know the futility of, of trying to hide from him in some way because of guilt. The, the prototype for that is set back in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. And as they were in the garden and they had sinned against God, Genesis 3.8 says they heard the sounds of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. A lot of levels that just seems really foolish and yet it is so indicative of what we do. They understood that God had created them and created everything they could see around them. They understood that God had a knowledge so vast that they were tempted by eating of some fruit to try to gain some sort of comparable knowledge or so they thought by virtue of the temptation. And so they understood how distinct they were from the greatness of this God and yet they thought that perhaps in some way they could hide from him and from his knowledge. Their guilt so intense from their sin that they were embarrassed in front of each other and shamed and ashamed before God. Sin isolates. It destroys relationships. It diminishes worship. It tempts us to be secretive and to lock doors and to put up obstacles and to try to hide parts of our lives in some way to, to withdraw them. This morning in Ecclesiastes 4 and 5, we're going to see a couple of ways in which God has designed us for, for certain activities, and yet sin seeks to hinder those. By the isolating work of sin, it seems to pull us back from companionship and from worship. Those are kind of the two that we're going to see, companionship, friendship, fellowship in chapter 4, and then worship of God in chapter 5. God did not make us to be solitary beings. We see that from the very beginning when he has made creation and it is still in a state prior to the fall and it is still all very good, even in that state in Genesis 2, he looks at Adam and says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so he creates Eve to be with Adam so that he is uh, not this solitary figure. Uh, in the Old Testament law, in Leviticus 19.18, God says to his people, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love, biblically speaking, is, is sacrifice. It is active. It is demonstrated. He again is saying it's, it's going to be shown in our relationships with one another and our care for one another. The New Testament is filled with all of those one another exhortations, about 60 of them. Love one another, be devoted to one another, serve one another, honor one another. The picture, one of the, the, the common pictures in the New Testament of the church that's used to help us understand it better is the body, right? All of the different members having different functions, different skills and gifts, and yet interconnected and interdependent as a body, demonstrating the fact that we rely on each other, that, that we weren't made to do this alone. 
That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 12 warns us when it comes to that body illustration that there's no place for one member of the body to say to another, I don't need you. Because as a matter of fact, we do. By virtue of God's design, we depend on each other. So here in Ecclesiastes 4, he's going to help us to see where sin can kind of interfere with this, first in terms of fellowship. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 7. We went through the first six verses last week, so we pick up this morning in Ecclesiastes 4, 7. And our themes here. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Let me just pause there a minute. There's our two key word phrases, if you will, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, which is the Hebrew word hebel, which is futile, fleeting, all of these things that the teacher in Ecclesiastes brings up and, and says, these are things I've tested, I've tried to try to find meaning, and they come up hebel. They come up futile. They are fleeting. They, they, you grasp at them and there's nothing there. Under the sun being his description of the worldview by which he's testing all these things. If you leave God out of the picture, if you focus on just what's here and now in front of me living for today, all you get is this stuff that just is fleeting and futile. And so he starts it off again by saying, again, I saw vanity under the sun. Here it is. Here's what that is this time. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. What the teacher is about to do here is to show us a contrast. Verse 9 will pick up the other side of it, but he's going to follow something here. We see it for the first time here, and we'll see it repeatedly in Ecclesiastes, and that is the use of the word better, showing us first... Here's one thing, typically this is the under the sun thing, this is the godless worldview, this is the here and now living for me, it's all about me sort of worldview, and here is the better view. And so he'll do this compare and contrast sort of thing throughout the book, and he starts here with this first one. Companionship and fellowship are better than loneliness and isolation. And what he's doing is taking this sort of workaholic figure to, to help us to see the contrast by saying, here's the under-the-sun guy. The under-the-sun guy. You want to see the, the example of foolish, futile, sort of me-centered, now-centered living? It's this guy. He works, and he works, and he, he takes in all kinds of money, and he's, he's rich, and he's successful, and he must interact with people because obviously he's getting work from people and he's invoicing people and he's making money. So there's, there's some interaction. None of it is fellowship. There's no friendships here. There's no family. In fact, it says there in verse 8, he has no other. He's got no one with which to enjoy it. And so he's sort of raked in all of this benefit and gain all for himself. And he's not even enjoying it, as the description goes. He, he doesn't even have time to find any pleasure in it, and he has no heir to leave it to. It is just a life that is focused on work and acquisition of wealth. This guy is, is an interesting character. He is fully immersed in the under-the-sun sort of worldview at this point. This is our, our picture of life that's just for the here and now, all about me. He's not so much reacting out of guilt from sin because we don't see any awareness on his part that he's even responsible before God. He's just sort of focused on himself. But this is isolation due to selfishness. 
I, it's all about me, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't care. I don't need other people. I don't need to be bothered with other people. He has no interest. It, 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 in that point there in verse 8, that he doesn't even ask the question. He is so preoccupied that he never even stops and says, why am I doing this? I, I get nothing out of it. There's no one to enjoy it with. The question doesn't even cross his mind because he is fully preoccupied with his own life. So verse 9, here comes the better now, the, the contrast. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. God did not design humans to go through life like the workaholic figure and just be about me. He designed us for companionship and for fellowship. And so he sort of lays out in this contrast how two are better than one. Two can complement each other. They can make the work more efficient. Any of us who've had to do projects around the house on Saturday and and some family members are involved and some aren't, and we're trying to appeal to them and say, we could all get this done together more quickly if we all worked on this project together, right? We've all said that. If you're a parent, you've said that at one time or another. Just think if we all pitched in on this. Two are better than one because there's another helper for the work, for efficiency. Two are better than one if one is in distress. If one falls down, there's one to come alongside, one to kneel down with that one and come alongside and lift him up. Two are better than one to fight against the elements. They can help protect each other. Two are better than one. They can defend one another against attack. It's kind of like that, that picture, at least in the front half of Job, when his companions come along and they are simply present. And it is a comforting sort of presence because they are there to grieve with him until they open their mouths. And we'll see something about opening mouths when we get in chapter 5. They're really good up until that point because two are better than one. It just provides someone else that God has placed in that life to just stand alongside. We often tie Ecclesiastes 4.12 sort of narrowly sometimes to weddings or to marriage, the cord of three strands. You've got the husband, you've got the wife, you've got God, and bound together, that is a strong cord. That's a great application and a, and a good application of, of that point. But the, the interpretation of it is really much simpler. It is that if two are better than one, then three is better than two. That, that the, the design of God is, here's this workaholic who is all alone, has nothing. Two are better. In fact, three brought together, the team grows. We see it here. I mean, that's what we're enjoying even as we labor for something like VBS. We see all of the different people involved and all the skills and all the gifts and everybody's sort of plugged in and, and kind of rowing the ship in the same direction. That's the idea of that cord of three strands is people coming together in fellowship and joining together. That's God's design. That's why he says, this is better. Here's the under the sun Here's what's better by God's design. Next few verses, and these are a little more challenging. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he, speaking of the youth now, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. 
I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. A little more interesting picture. There are times in Ecclesiastes when you're reading along and you go, um, how did that go with, with that? How do these fit together? This is one of those instances where we sort of pause and go, okay, what's the connection? I, I think there's at least a loose connection with what we saw previously. But first, let's, let's sort of define what we've got. We have an old, foolish king who refuses to listen to advice. He has been on the throne. He has counselors, presumably he did not rule without good counsel for years and years, but he has now reached the point in life when he is stubborn and foolish and doesn't care what people have to say. He does not listen to them. Then we have the young, wise, new king, the new version, if you will. The, the interesting thing for us here is if you talk in Hebrew culture and in terms of biblical proverbs, it's sort of all flipped here. Old experienced time, that's usually what we think of as wisdom, youthful, inexperienced, maybe brashness we tend to think of as foolishness. The teacher says, oh no, the old fool is the king, the young wise guy who came up out of a, sort of a rags to riches, poverty, even imprisonment it appears at some point, this is the one now who's ascending to the throne. But in the conclusion of it, he says, each sort of had their season of acclaim when people were impressed with them. Both faded away and are forgotten. The next generation comes and goes, who's that? I don't, don't care, don't know. It's, it is, again, the epitome of the under the sun, whether it's the workaholic who puts everything into his business or the king who rules. He says, in the end, it's still all pretty earthbound and they're pretty much forgotten. There are hints here in this succession of kings to David and Saul, and maybe even a bit to Joseph, David, and Saul in the sense if you know their story. There's, you talk about the old foolish king who is gripping something that is not his any longer by, by God's anointing. And there is young David who is now the one who is being ascended to the throne. And, and that, that struggle that goes on between them, although there is no necessary imprisonment so much there. Joseph, also a little bit of that. He was enslaved. He was put in prison. When he's released and delivered from prison, he becomes second in command of a nation. So there's some hints there. Not clear that he's trying to allude specifically to either one. His point, though, in connecting back to the prior verses, seems to be that in this under-the-sun approach, regardless of, of how great life may go, regardless of how successful you may be, it is still entirely possible by sin to isolate yourself from other people to disregard the need for fellowship and communion. Whether you're an old king who says, I don't need to listen, I don't need any of you. I'm the king and I don't need to listen to you anymore. Or, or whether you're some young, promising new king who it says he stands in the place of the king, even he doesn't give us much hope because even he is ultimately forgotten and no longer liked. When the applause for both kingdoms dies down, there's nothing left under the sun. These are two men who once held power, who are now dead and gone, and who people have no regard for. And he says, this is just striving after wind. So the teacher has given us in this comparison 
Three different guys, a workaholic, an old foolish king, and a young wise king. In worldly terms, they are achievers. They have power and possessions and ambition and, and presumably all the things that people envy that they want for themselves. And yet the workaholics seem to despise other people. The old king had no interest in listening to other people. And the young king, it says, had crowds that followed him, but in the end didn't even like him anymore. They were not rejoicing at him any longer. And so somewhere along the way, all of that fanfare is gone. It is just again to picture to us the ultimate futility of the under-the-sun approach to life. If this is all there is, eventually it all goes away. Eventually it's all futile. All of the riches and the power did not equal genuine fellowship, enjoyment of life. If God has blessed you with loving family, if he has given you a friend or two that you count as dear, as people who will stand there with you, just be alongside when you hurt and who will check in on you, who will tell you the truth, even when the truth is hard to say, who love you no matter what, who, who are just present with you. Even if you don't have earthly riches or power, possessions, fame, any of that, if you've got that kind of fellowship, that kind of person that you look to and you, God has put them in your life, you have great reason to give thanks. God has blessed you in that way. You have a gift from God. Because as God says, that's better. You could have all the possessions and have no other. Or you could have somebody that's just there to pick you up because you fall a lot. And they come alongside and they're there to kneel down and help you up. That's better. Two are better than one. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. The love that we have in terms of fellowship, that we have as a body of believers, that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you have in your life in close friendships, those are things to be not only content with, but to be thankful to God for those good gifts. So let's shift a little bit now from companionship. The topic seems now to be worship. Some of the Clearer verses we'll get to read here in Ecclesiastes until we get to chapter 12 are here in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, this opening unit here of 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying for it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. We've seen already that companionship and fellowship are better than loneliness and isolation. Worshipful listening to God is better than rash words and foolish vows. We get a comparison again. One of those better is this than that. 
God has designed us to live in community and to have fellowship with one another. He has also made us to be worshipers, to understand that there is a creator to whom we are accountable and to be a worshiper of that creator. And by his design, we are able to see passages like Psalm 100 that Stuart read as our call to worship this morning and see God calling us into his presence, come into his presence with singing, into his courts with praise, giving thanks unto him. There is the God of the universe, the creator. In fact, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, don't forget, he's in heaven and you're on earth. There's, there, he is so great and transcendent. And yet, scripture says, he longs for us to come into his presence and into his courts, come right to the king, with our, our thanksgiving and our praise and our rejoicing. That is a glorious and inviting picture, isn't it? That the God of the universe would say to you and I, come, come and worship. With that invitation, the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes also says, there is responsibility to not forget that he is the God of the universe. To not forget that he is a holy, sinless God. Proverbs 6, among many passages, is one of many that describes how God hates sinful pride and lying and violence and scheming against others. It's because he is a holy God. And so the, the, the picture here is the teacher urging us to draw near and come to the house of God, but also to come recognizing that he is God and that we do well to come and to listen. That's the better than statement there. In, in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. We are called to come into God's presence, but not in a careless manner. And the way we do that is we come by listening to him. We come by being people who want to hear from God. The, the worshiping that is going on in this passage is happening as a response to God, and that's how he calls us to be. People who hear God, and where do we hear God? We hear him from his word, just like we're doing now as we're meditating on, on Scripture. That is God speaking to us, and God is calling us to be worshipers who respond to his truth, who look at his truth and, and are in awe of it and respond appropriately. He wants us to be good listeners, worshipful listeners, understanding that he's not the God that we've designed who's there to fix everything in my life, listen to all my problems so that he can fix them all and make me happy. That's, that's sort of the God of our design. This God says, know me for who I am by listening to me in, your, in my word. Hear what I have to say to you. And so that's why this passage is full of warnings about our mouths. Because that's what gets us in trouble, is we speak without listening. And we know our mouths get us in trouble. Jesus said it in, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? From the heart. Well, it didn't just randomly come out. It was what I was already thinking and meditating on. And so the words that pour out of my mouth are a reflection of how I think, what I believe. Our words express what's inside. And so the teacher says, you know what? Slow down. As James would say in James 1, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Approach God 
as a listening worshiper, as one who wants to hear from him. Don't just talk for the sake of filling silence. We are in a world that likes nonstop activity, and so silence sometimes just drives us crazy. We want something to be going on. The teacher in Ecclesiastes is offering a lot of wisdom when he says, Don't, your mouth is probably more likely to get you in trouble than not. So just be quiet and listen for what God has to say. He uses dreams in verse 3, and it's kind of an interesting verse, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. He's making a comparison here. Derek Kidner, one of the commentators, writes this, By its very quantity, an excess of talk is bound to throw up folly, just as an excess of business ends in troubled dreams. The idea here seems to be that the teacher is saying that often dreams quantity of dreams seems to go with a life that is overwhelmed. When there is activity and there's so much going on in our lives, those are some of the nights when we have kind of those restless nights with dreaming, a lot of dreams that go on, and we're trying in the morning to figure out how in the world did all that fit, and, and, and tends to, as he's saying here, tends to be tied to a lot of activity, much as he makes the comparison that where you see a fool, that there is much words, that that is indicative of somebody who's just racing on thoughtlessly a lot of the time and just saying things. No, no check, you know, it just sort of, you know those folks that you just kind of wish they just occasionally would put a barrier up and just sort of guard it instead of everything just spewing out. If, if all that we bring to God in prayer when we do talk to him is just a litany of circumstances that we want fixed and a list of everything we're unhappy about and a list of all the people we're unhappy with, then we are missing here. This is, that's what the writer in Ecclesiastes is warning about. Pause and listen to God. Because he may well be working in those terrible circumstances and through those difficult people. He may have something for you to learn in that situation. And he just wants you to meditate on his word and understand that he's at work and he hasn't left you. In fact, I think verse 6 gives the picture there. If you're somebody who is prone to frequently say things that are foolish or hurtful, or tactless, and then you have to circle back again a short time later and say, I shouldn't have said that. I made a mistake. If that's sort of a pattern for you, if you, if you find that sometimes when you have disagreements with your spouse, or if you have problems with a coworker who just always seems to speak first and then come back later and say, my mistake, his counsel here is simple. Shut up. <laughs> You know, it's a little crass way of saying that, but, but that's essentially what he's saying. If, if that's your pattern, then slow down and don't speak as much. Be quiet and listen. We've all had those encounters where we are in a heated discussion with someone, and, and this could go both ways, but we are sure that they are not listening to what we are saying, Right? When everything we say just seems like it's something's coming back and you're going, they're not listening to anything I'm saying. And, and half the time they're thinking the same thing, not listening to anything I'm saying. All right, in Ecclesiastes, wisdom here is slow down. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Sin interferes with your worship with God and with the intimacy of your fellowship with him. Don't, don't disrespect God by just spewing out things and saying things to God without taking the time to listen and to see what his word says. Why provoke God's anger by saying foolish things that reveal how little we are really listening to him? That's kind of what the 
writer is pointing us toward. God is our Father. He loves us. If you are believing in Jesus Christ as Savior, he longs for you to be much like David in the Psalms and to cry out for help and for strength, to cry out to him as Father. But he also longs that, just like we see in David's life, he longs for us to see that he is God and he is wise and he is loving and we best find help and counsel by listening to him by listening to his word and hearing what he says. It's wise words when he completes this by saying, God is the one you must fear. Keep a reverent heart toward God. Understand who he is. Never lose sight of the fact that as the writer in Ecclesiastes says, draw near to the house but know that he is in heaven and you are on earth. There is still a transcendence to God that should always keep us in awe of his wisdom and his knowledge and his power. And that's what keeps us dependent and humble and quiet, saying, Lord, I, I need your help. I don't know what to do here. I, I want to wrap this up, but I, and I want to jump it forward, because I, the writer in Ecclesiastes has given us good wisdom counsel. But if you would look for just a few minutes at Hebrews 10, and, and we'll finish there. We went to Hebrews last week, and I think, again, there's, there's some... There's some finish here, if you will, to this passage in Hebrews in that there are some similar exhortations about both fellowship and worship. In this case, starting with worship, and he's using Jesus Christ as the model. What pleases God the Father about what Jesus Christ did is not that Jesus said, here, Father, I have this offering, and I have this sacrifice, and I'm going to do this activity, and, 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 and all these certain things that he's handing to God the Father. What it says in Hebrews, what pleases the Father is that Jesus came to do his will. Not my will, but thine. He came to do what the Father had sent him to do. Not with burnt offerings or sacrifices that don't remove sin, but rather pleasing the Father by doing his will. So if you look at verse 8 of Hebrews 10, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he, had it, he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, the sacrificial system is now being done away with to establish the second, that is, doing the will of the Father in his, his own sacrifice of his life. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering, the one offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation by giving his life as a sacrifice for sin. That was the will of the Father, and that's what was pleasing, and that's what brings about forgiveness of sin. You and I, as Listeners are called then to respond to that by embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, by believing that he is Savior, by believing that Jesus Christ came and put an end to the sacrificial system. That was a shadow. The burnt offerings and the sacrifices in the Old Testament were a shadow saying there must be, these don't take away sin, but they point to a sacrifice that will. And Jesus Christ came and gives his life as a ransom, and now gives us the ability to approach God through him. Look down at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great 
priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember what we talked about at the beginning? What, is, what, what brings about that isolation? Sin, right? The guilt from that sin, the, the, the pain in the conscience that says, I, I, I have no business standing before the holy God of the universe because of my sin. And here now the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, you can draw near to God because Jesus Christ gave himself as the once and for all perfect sacrifice for sin. You now, he says, draw near to him with true heart and full assurance of faith and heart sprinkled clean. We can now, through the new and living way of the gospel, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can now draw near to God. Sin isolates. Sin not only isolates, but it tells us somehow we're better off isolated, that we can't approach him. So we're just over here. We might as well just might as well be the workaholic in Ecclesiastes and just do for self because you'll never figure him out. So just do what you want to do. Enjoy life the way you want to. Just make work an idol or whatever it is and ignore him. Sin separates us from God. It induces this, this guilt. It tempts us to try to hide from him and not come near to him. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, friend, that has been defeated. What Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross defeats sin and death. And so the shame and guilt that goes with it is covered by the cross as well. So come near to God. Come as a worshipful listener hearing this truth about this gospel and respond in praise to him. Now by his grace we can draw near. Now by his grace we can learn to listen more than we speak. Now by his grace, we can guard our tongues. By his grace, he helps us to confess when we've been foolish and we've spoken too quickly. Not only does this passage speak to what we've read already in terms of drawing us near to God, but look at verse 24, the last two verses, and then we'll, we'll end there. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What is it that not only isolates us from God, but draws us away from fellowship? Sin. Selfishness. It, 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 it either it keeps me from wanting to let you get close to see my life because I don't want you to see it because I'm ashamed of it, or it drives me to say, I'm just living for me. And I don't care about you. That same work of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin and, and draws us into the presence of God as worshipful listeners now is also the vehicle by which we are drawn together as one another's. Who now come for the purpose of not what can I get out of this, but come to encourage one another and all the more. That come to minister to one another and serve one another and allow God to bestow grace to one another through us. Sin isolates. Sin's temptation is just live life under the sun. Work, achieve, turn work into an idol. Sin can make us so self-centered that we don't even listen for the voice of God, much less turn to him. We think that he's there primarily to hear us when we need him. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you, God, when we need you. In the meantime, life goes on. 
Sin can make us careless about God. Instead of holding him in awe as, as creator and redeemer, sin leaves us imagining that we can do it without God. We can, if need be, say whatever we want to God. He's sort of a God of our own creation. Doesn't matter how foolish we talk to him, he'll deal with it. God's redeeming grace offers you and I such hope, doesn't it? To the futility of trying to go it alone, God's grace says, no, that's not my design. I've designed you for fellowship and companionship, and God's grace allows us to, to draw together and to encourage one another. God's grace leads us to draw near and find quietness and, and contentment in him. Not in this foolish under-the-sun approach that keeps striving and striving like chasing something you can never catch up with. God's grace lets us draw near to his people by delivering us from the temptation to to twist people and relationships into idols for our own benefit. God's grace gives us the words to lift to him in praise and the words to speak to one another in encouragement. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather in just a moment before the communion table, it, that, that very word of communion reminds us of how precious and sweet it is that we are able to, by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, commune with you, have a deep, intimate, satisfying relationship with you. And for that, we thank you. I pray that each person here this morning is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for hope, for life. Lord, in this time of communion, it's also a such a unique bond that we share as brothers and sisters. We are drawn together as well. We thank you for your design of the church, that it is not your design to save us out of the world to an isolated place where we just go it on our own, but it is your desire to save us out of the world and put us immediately into a body where we understand how fully dependent we are on one another. Thank you for Grace Bible Church, for this body of believers for the connectedness and the, the, the interdependence that you build here. We pray you would do that more and more. Help us to rely on the brothers and sisters you've given us. And even more than that, help us to listen to you and depend on you and worship. And Father, we pray all these things in the name of the Son who is the new and living way, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.